Welcome to the Reform Rookie Podcast. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so? Worthy vicar, do we find anything here of relics? By faith man lives and is made righteous, not by what he does for himself. Be it adoration of relics, singing of masses, pilgrimages to Rome, purchase of pardon for his sins, but by faith in what God has done for him already through his son. Dr. Martin, if you leave the Christian to live only by faith, if you sweep away all good works, all these glorious things you dismiss as mere crutches, what will you put in their place? Christ. Man only needs Jesus Christ. Thanks again for joining us on the Reform Rookie Podcast. My name is Anthony Uvino, and I'm one of the Reform Rookie Coaches. Today, we'll continue through our series on the Holy Spirit. Pastor Richard Jensen of Hope Reform Baptist Church in Quorum, New York, has been a pastor for over 20 years and will give us the Reform perspective on this doctrine while also clearing up much of the confusion and false teaching that pervades the church today. This series will go over who the Holy Spirit is, what He does, and what the baptism of the Holy Spirit means. It will also cover spiritual gifts like tongues and prophecy and whether they are for today or not. Please listen to this message as well as the whole series and as well as other messages we will be doing on Reformed Theology and Doctrine. You can reach us on the web at www.reformedrookie.com. Once again, thanks for joining us and remember, Semper Reformanda. And turn in your Bibles once again to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 14. We'll be reading those same three verses which we've been reading for the last several weeks. This is Jesus' last discourse to his disciples before he is crucified, before he is raised from the dead, and before his ascension. John, chapter 14, verses 16 to 18. Hear now the inspired word of God. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we prepare to... Open your word and listen to what you have to say to us. We pray that you would be pleased to bless the preaching. That, Father, that as the word goes forth, just as you've promised, it would not return void, but it would accomplish every purpose for which it is sent. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I want to pose a situation for you this morning. Suppose we took ten people who had never seen a traffic light before. And we took them and we sat them down and asked them to watch a a traffic light and just observe the cars for a while. And then we asked them later to define, what do each color light mean? What does it mean? Now, I don't think there'd be any doubt that red and green would pretty much be defined accurately by all of them. 
It wouldn't take long before the average person could tell that cars would stop when the red light came on and they would go when it turned green. And even though an occasional car may pass a red light, they would more than likely understand it. But I think we might find that opinions would differ when it comes to a yellow light, especially if the study was done here on Long Island. I think there would be some disagreement concerning what the red light meant, uh, the, the yellow light meant. Some would undoubtedly get the meaning right. It's, they would know that it would be a caution that the red light is coming and you should start to slow down. But I think there might be quite a few people who came to the conclusion that the yellow light means to speed up and go as fast as you can. <laughs> now, why would that be? Because all they would have to go on is what they saw. See, so the problem is that our observers would face is that they would be relying on the actions of the drivers to draw those conclusions. And as we know, not all drivers obey the traffic laws. So there would be erroneous conclusions. You know, it's, it, there's a similar situation that's present in a large percentage of the church today, especially when it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the function of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the place of signs and wonders in God's plan of redemption, is largely based upon what people see and hear in the modern church. Uh, the doctrine of these things is based on experience <coughs> and not on the clear teaching of God's Word. And the teaching that does take place on these topics is a result of similar errors in how they apply Scripture. And instead of applying all the scriptural teaching on the gifts of the Spirit, we're taken to Acts 2 and said, this is it. This is normative. We're told that every Christian needs to experience the same Pentecostal happening that we read in Acts chapter 2. Now, this is a very common mistake in the interpretation of Scripture. Just because it happened this way, just because we can find an example in Scripture, doesn't mean that that's the way it needs to happen. For example, suppose we would apply this same method in our counseling on how to find a wife. Let me give you some examples of biblical examples of how people found their wives in Scripture. Purchase a piece of property and get a woman as part of the deal. That was Boaz. Go to a party and hide, and when the women come out to dance, grab one and carry her off to be your wife. That was the Benjamites. Find a prostitute and marry her. It's Hosea. How about become the emperor of a huge nation and hold a beauty contest? King Ahasuerus. Or how about this one? When you see someone you like, go home, tell your parents, I've seen a woman, now get her for me. That was Samson. Hmm. By the way, this comes from a website, 15 ways to, biblical ways to find a wife. <laughs> 
I have this for anybody who's interested. <laughs> Obviously, not everything that is written down in the Scripture is normative for us. If you want to know the function of the yellow light, the best way is to check the New York State Vehicle and Traffic Law. Not the experience of people who may or may not obey the law. If you want to know the function of the gifts of the Spirit, don't look at what some people are doing or even saying. You go to the infallible Word of God. And then you must be able to handle the Word of God accurately. We've come to the portion of Scripture in the Gospel of John where Jesus has promised uh, to send His Holy Spirit. And we've taken a side trip into the book of Hebrews, because Hebrews chapter 2 is crucial on this whole topic. Remember, we read in Hebrews 2, starting in verse 3, talking about the Word of God that was spoken, all right? In, in chapter 2, verse 3, it says, After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His own will. That's very crucial that we understand that portion. And we need to keep that text in mind as we continue. Remember, we've seen a few important points in our study to date. One of them is that Jesus Christ brought the new covenant in His blood to mankind and that revelation of God is complete in Him. The whole charismatic controversy could be easily settled if we just look at things from this biblical perspective. But as we examine the teaching on the gifts of the Spirit, we find errors, even in defining the gifts. This morning I want to look at just two of the most misunderstood gifts of the Spirit. Last week we looked at the gifts in the Spirit in general. This morning I want to focus on just two, and so we can look at the error of the charismatic practice concerning the gifts. So we're going to look at prophecy and tongues. This morning. First, what is prophecy? Well, prophecy is not specifically uh, foretelling the future. It, it can include that, but it is not defined by that aspect alone. Prophecy is speaking, in the broadest sense, is just speaking the truth of God. But the spiritual gift of prophecy is speaking the truth of God in direct revelation from God. The essence of prophecy is given in 2 Peter chapter 1. We've looked at these verses before, verse 20. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. See, prophecy is speaking directly from God as the speaker is moved by the Holy Spirit. And that distinguishes it from preaching. You see, the, the preacher gives the truth of God by using the Word of God as it has already been given. I'm preaching to you this morning, not new revelation, but I'm preaching from texts of Scripture. I can stand before you and I can say, thus saith the Lord, only as long as I quote accurately from the Scriptures. The prophet has the right to say, thus saith the Lord, as he is moved by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't need a text to expound. He, he gives new revelation. 
And the Bible distinguishes between a prophet and a preacher. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. See, the prophet does preach and teach at times, but not every preacher can prophesy. Uh, The prophet reveals mysteries of God never before revealed. We see this again in the, the book of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul says, and by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And in, uh, further down in Ephesians 3, he says, To me, the very least of saints, his grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery for which ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So we see there's, there's a difference. Another distinction that we need to make is the difference between the office of the prophet and the gift of prophecy. Uh, Even in the New Testament age, there were those who were called prophets. We read that in Acts 21 where we find there was a man named Agabus, and he's described as a certain prophet. But the gift of prophecy was given to many people at diverse times. Uh, Just one example. In Acts chapter 19, verse 6, And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Now, these men were not necessarily prophets in in the sense that they were being called by God to that particular office, but they exercised the gift of prophecy. So what then is the purpose of prophecy? Well, we've seen that prophecy is a sign. Remember, it was an attesting sign that the apostles were who they say they said they were. But it also serves a very pragmatic function in the church. Scripture says it was designed to edify the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, for exhortation, and consolation. Again, in 1 Corinthians 14, we read this. But if all prophecy, I'm sorry, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. We're told in Revelation 19.10 what the very heart of prophecy is. And this is a crucial text, which is very seldom spoken of by those who are advocating the the gift of prophecy. Revelation 19.10, the Apostle John is writing, he says, And I fell at his feet to worship him, this is the angel, and he said to me, Do not do that, for I am a fellow servant of yours, and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. There is the underlying issue with prophecy. It's the testimony of Jesus. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is prophecy? Well, prophecy is an inspired message from God. Therefore, it is binding on us. The Bible knows of no substandard prophecy. There's no such thing as a prophecy from God that you don't have to listen to. So if someone claims to have a word from God for you, ask them how authoritative it is. Is it as authoritative as Holy Scripture? Is it sin not to adhere to it? 
If not, then it cannot be by definition prophecy. It cannot be from God. Remember what we have studied in the last few weeks. The gifts were given to authenticate the apostles and the prophets and were infallible. So let's move on in what are tongues. We are told that they are ecstatic utterances in an unknown or heavenly language. That's what we're told in the charismatic churches today. And most of the churches where tongues are spoken differentiate between tongues of Pentecost and tongues of Corinth and different kinds of tongues. <coughs> Is this true? Are there different meanings to the term tongues in Scripture? Again, let's let the Bible speak. Let's, look, let's go back to Acts chapter 2. This is the first occasion where we see it very specifically. Acts chapter 2, verse 6. It says this, And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered, because they were each hearing them speak in his own language. Remember, this is when the tongues of fire came upon the apostles, and they began to speak in other languages. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, certain Cretans and and Arabs, We hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So notice, what do we hear? Tongues was speaking in a miraculous way, a language unlearned by the speaker. But it was a known language that he was speaking. It was either Egyptian or Arabian or Cretan. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Suppose we had someone here this morning who came from Sweden. And all of a sudden, I started speaking fluent Swedish. Now, that would be a miracle consistent with Pentecost. Because I don't know Swedish at all. In fact, that would be a greater miracle since I am Norwegian and would never willingly speak Swedish. (laughs) There's a rivalry between the Swedes and the Norwegians in case you didn't understand that. But that's what happened at Pentecost. These Galileans were speaking languages that they had never learned. What occurred at Pentecost was a reversal of the curse at Babel. God confounded all the language at Babel because man was bent on following their own sinful desires. At Pentecost, he caused each man to hear the gospel in his own language. And that is because the gospel was to spread to every tribe and tongue and nation on earth. That's what the gift of tongues was. And that's what we see in Pentecost. So now the question is, what about tongues at Corinth? Is the gift of tongues that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, specifically chapters 12, 13, and 14, are they different? There is absolutely no biblical nor logical reason to say that they were any different than what we saw at the day of Pentecost. Unless otherwise noted by a biblical writer, what right do we have to make a differentiation in the gift of tongues? 
when Paul introduces the discussion on tongues in, in these three chapters in, in 1 Corinthians, he doesn't say, now concerning the special gift of Corinthian tongues, he doesn't reclassify tongues or redefine them. In fact, these three chapters were given to clarify and control the abuse of the gift of the Corinthian church. So these chapters are crucial for any understanding of the gifts. The gift of tongues, which the Holy Spirit gave to the Corinthians, it is exactly the same gift he gave at Pentecost. And careful examine of the Bible will show this to be true. And the first thing we see as we look at the gift of tongues is that it was always given in comparison with prophecy. In fact, a great deal of chapter 14 is to show that prophecy is to be desired over tongues. 1 Corinthians 14.1 Pursue love, yet earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Verse 39 Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. Do not forbid to speak in tongues. Notice, tongue speaking was to be forbidden in the church, but that was not the preferred gift. The preferred gift was prophecy. Tongues and prophecy are closely related to one another. They are both verbal gifts. They are both designed to reveal the mysteries of God. And we've already seen that is true of prophecy, but it's also true about tongues. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2. For the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. See, both reveal mysteries, but with one big difference. Prophecy reveals them in such a way that the church is edified. But unless one condition is met, the mystery spoken in tongues will remain a mystery. And what is that condition? There must be an interpretation. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit gave the gift of tongues because there were many different languages and speaking, many different languages spoken by the people who were present. And he continued to give the gift to his church so the gospel could be preached to every tongue and every tribe. But the gift was being abused in Corinth and people were speaking tongues when there were no foreign-speaking people present and no interpreter. Therefore, the gift was of no use in these circumstances. It had become a matter of spiritual pride. And what was the outcome? Confusion was the order of the day. However, when the interpretation is given, tongues is on a par with prophecy and the church is edified. But without an interpreter, it would even appear, according to the Apostle Paul, these people are insane. That's what he said. In other words, Paul says, don't lose sight of the purpose for the gifts. And then in chapter 13, he says, don't be as children. He doesn't want the church to remain in the infancy in this area of gifts either. Tongues was important. It was a gift from the Holy Spirit. And he said, do not forbid to speak in tongues, but grow up. You are abusing the gifts of the Holy Spirit for your own benefit, for your own ego. You see, you have to look at the whole context of the book of 1 Corinthians. The church in Corinth was an immature and weak church. The purpose for this whole epistle was to correct their errors. Remember, just a, a quick understanding of this church. Firstly, chapter 1 tells us they had divisive factions. 
They were bragging about who baptized who. They didn't deal with the immorality as they should in chapter 5. They were taking each other to court in chapter 6. They had a divorce problem in chapter (coughs) 7. And then they were abusing the Lord's Supper and getting drunk in chapter 11. They were also abusing the spiritual gifts. So Paul tells them they are like a weak-sounding bugle, a clanging cymbal. Who's going to follow you, he says. So get things in order. So then, looking at some of these things, what what are tongues? They are a miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit where a man will speak in a language not previously learned by him. They are a form of prophecy when interpreted correctly. They reveal the mysteries of God directly by means of the Spirit of God. And so the implications then are clear. If tongues are divinely inspired revelations from God, we better obey them. If someone gives an utterance from God and it is in an unlearned language and it is interpreted, we dare not disobey this message. In the same way, we can't disobey true prophecy. And that's what Paul says in these chapters. If someone has a word from God in a strange tongue, don't forbid them. But everything should be done decently and in order. So what's happening today in the charismatic churches? The modern tongues movement is in violation of Scripture at virtually every single turn. They do not claim that prophecy in tongues is inspired and must be obeyed. They claim that tongues is an ecstatic utterance in a completely unknown language. The interpretation that is done is not a systematic interpretation of a language, but a feeling about what the other person has just said. Tongue speaking has been analyzed by linguistic experts and found to have no pattern whereby it could even be called a language. It is merely the repetition of the same sounds over and over again. There's no structure or syntax that can be distinguished. And the charismatic would appeal to 1 Corinthians 13 and say that this is a heavenly language and and tongues of angels. But again, they fall short of sound interpretation. There's no account in Scripture of angels speaking in strange utterances or babblings. In fact, we see them speaking, whenever we find them speaking, they're speaking in some sort of known human language. If there is a separate heavenly language spoken by angels, we would then expect it to be superior to our own language, not some babblings. There's no questions that tongues was a gift from the Holy Spirit. It was useful and beneficial for the church. It was a sign of the apostles. And next week we're going to look more closely at this gift of the Spirit and see why it was meant to cease. But I want to show you one more thing concerning the gift of tongues. And I hope this will shed some light on the first century understanding of tongues. And I think that this might be something that many of you have never heard before. It's not new with me. It's not some new revelation. We need to understand this. Firstly, the church, the early church, was patterned after the synagogue model of worship. In order to have a synagogue in a city, there had to be ten righteous men. That was 
the stipulation. And, and these, who these ten men were is of importance to our study. First, there were what's, what was called the bench of three, rulers over certain issues and disputes, etc. Then there were three deacons who took care of the needs of the poor. Then there, were, then there was a man who was called the angel of the church or an overseer. It was his job to oversee the worship service. He called out as many as seven worthy men to read from the books of the law. It is probable that Jesus was chosen by the overseer in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, where he was called out to read the text of Scripture in the synagogue. The eighth man had a very interesting job. He was called the interpreter. He was said to be gifted in tongues. What did that mean? The scriptures were read in the Hebrew language in the synagogue. But most of the congregation didn't speak Hebrew. So the word needed to be interpreted into the common language. And that was the job of the interpreter. It was the job of the overseer to make sure that he did so accurately and didn't embellish upon the text. So if he tested or discerned the spirit of prophecy to make sure it was accurate. Now all of this information that I just gave you is available from the rabbinical writings of that age. This is the way it was done. So we see that the Jews were familiar with the person speaking in tongues before the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit was even given. If you follow the 14th chapter of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, you will see this pattern that Paul follows. The worship service was conducted similarly in the New Testament church. But with the miraculous gift of tongues, Paul had to ensure that things didn't get out of hand. So he brings order to the service by insisting that any prophecy in another tongue have an interpreter. And just as the Jews had to have the scriptures interpreted, so the gift of prophecy in another tongue had to be interpreted. If there was no interpreter, then it was out of order. Now this supports the biblical text that tongues was a language but unknown to the speaker. It was not some emotional, ecstatic utterance. It came from the Holy Spirit with a purpose in mind. And that was to edify the listener when it was properly interpreted. But there is always the caution given in Scripture to test, to test the spirits. Whether tongues, prophecy, or even the reading and teaching ministry, the Scripture constantly warns us to test the spirits. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 20 and 21. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. There are false prophets waiting to deceive. And so we are to test everything by the Word of God. The only sure test is to test everything by God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word. It is the complete and authoritative guide for all of life. Next week, I intend to put forth the case to show you that tongues has definitely ceased 
and why. In fact, the title of the sermon next week might be a little provocative. It's Praise God, Tongues Have Ceased. And I hope you'll see why when we get into the text. But for today, just test what goes on in the modern charismatic churches by the Word of God, and even on a practical level. How do they stand under the biblical test? Firstly, they misdefine what tongues are. They can offer no certain interpretation. They will not claim that the word of prophecy or tongues is inspired and therefore binding on the church. They are not called to speak in turn. It is usually out of order. Many of these speaking in tongues or prophesying are women, and Paul in this very section of Scripture forbids such a practice. And even on the practical level, the modern tongues movement fails the biblical test. Someday, I would love to conduct that test and have somebody sit by an intersection and define the purpose of a yellow light, somebody who has never seen one before. But I think most of you in this room do not know actually what the law pertaining to the yellow light is. I'll make you bet if I was to go around, we'd only get a few people who got it right, those who studied the vehicle and traffic law. Because actually the law says it's just not permissible to enter, it, it is permissible to enter the intersection while the light is yellow. You cannot enter when it's red. But if you're in it and it turns red, you're still okay. See, police officers don't determine who gets a ticket on the opinions or practices of people who are standing by. They go to the vehicle and traffic law, and that's where they get their answers. We should not allow the experience of others in different churches to define the biblical gifts of prophecy in tongues. We go to the Word of God. And this is not a trivial issue in the church. The danger of misinterpreting this damages the doctrine of Scripture. Many sincere Christians are caught in a system that looks to emotion and experience for help instead of the inspired Word of God. The words of men in a very emotional state are substituted for the inerrant Word of God. The Word of God is being misrepresented to the very people it should be helping. I want to leave you with a couple of thoughts. First, let me caution you so you don't get caught up in any such thinking. The way to avoid such error is to study the Word of God and learn how to, how to interpret it accurately. Secondly, we must lovingly and gently challenge those who we know and love with their error. We cannot and must not just sit idly by and to see those that we love move around into these, this serious error. We have a responsibility of those who study the Word to even confront our brothers and sisters in Christ with their error and to show them the danger and where they are wrong. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, this this is a very important issue because sometimes we get churches get so caught up in this, these practices that the gospel message is watered down. 
God has given us the most important gift in His Son. And we have an inspired record of all that we need to know about life and godliness. It tells us how we, the, the, our need for salvation. And that salvation is found in Him and Him alone. And we're not to be seeking these extra biblical revelations, but go to the Word of God, examine yourself, see that you need a Savior, repent of your sin, that you might have eternal life and fellowship with Him. Let's pray. Father, once again we bow before You and we thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Father, that we don't have to wait for some prophetic word from some individual, some visiting pastor or evangelist. But Father, we have at our disposal the fully inspired, inerrant Word of God completely sufficient for all of life and godliness. Thank you, Father, that you have brought your church to maturity and given us everything we need. We have the, the Holy Spirit who enables us to read your Word and to interpret it accurately. Father, I would pray for anyone here today who doesn't know you that you'd take away their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh, that they might repent of their sin. And then, Father, for those, for those of us in your church, Father, I pray that you would give us clarity of mind on this important topic and that, Father, that we would be salt and light even within the church to those who might practice such things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the Reformed Rookie Podcast, where we aim to teach Reformed theology to beginners or rookies. Be sure to look us up on the web at www.reformedrookie.com, where you will find many more learning tools and aids to help you grow in your understanding of all things Reformed. And remember, Semper Reformanda. Dr. Luther, are you prepared to retract these writings? In some, I discuss faith and good works. If I were to retract these, I should be denying accepted Christian truths. Martin Luther, you have not yet answered the question. Will you recant, or will you not? Here it is. I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen.